the liberal idea of tolerance is more and more a kind of intolerance. What it means is, leave me alone. Don't harass me. I'm intolerant towards your over-proximity. Leave me be as I embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 214 of Embrace the Void, where we're going with the rapidly accelerating flow. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we are discussing liberalism and cancellation. So, let's make with the paradoxes. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guest this week is Adam Gurry, founder and editor-in-chief of Liberal Currents. Adam, would you like to say hi to the void? Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to have a chat about uh, liberalism, which is, of course, something that we are, I think, both personally interested in. Do you want to maybe get us started by letting folks know a little bit about your background and how you end up founding Liberal Currents? Sure, yeah. Some friends and I had been writing for some time. Uh, we had a group blog called Sweet Talk that was about philosophy and social science mostly. It got to be pretty esoteric stuff, like I was writing about hermeneutics and rhetoric and mm. things like that by the end of it. And then 2016 happened, essentially, and many of us felt it was time to move to something a little more relevant, well, with, with wider relevance. And that's mm -hmm. that's why that's that's how Liberal Currents came about. You weren't getting a lot of traction with hermeneutics? I don't understand. I mean, you know, I tried. I tried. It seems like a sexy topic to me, but... <laughs> right. I'm sure there's a hermeneutics paper to explain why you uh, weren't getting enough traction or something. <laughs> So you guys put together liberal currents. So why then would you voluntarily choose to associate your org with such a universally loathed concept as something like liberalism? <laughs> well, it's funny. Uh, so Jason Brigham, one of the founding editors, mm -hmm. uh, he was the one who specifically pushed this idea of, of doing this. And his model was Jacobin. But it's kind of a funny model, right? Because Jacobin's mm -hmm. advantage, I would say, is that they're catering to a minority perspective that sees itself as very besieged by mm -hmm. the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. And they could come in and say, we are the serious voice uh, articulating uh, the intellectually rigorous position for, for this minority. But you guys aren't doing that is what you're saying. Well, we're the, the opposite. We're, we're trying to do the intellectually serious part, but mm -hmm. it's for sort of the majority, right? I mean, 
Uh, I think the reason I think the reason that liberalism is so universally loathed, as you put it, is because it's so universally dominant. Mm, It's mm -hmm. it's its assumptions are just kind of like baked into everything. And so if you want to blame something, you're going to blame it because it's everywhere. Um, If you're an American or or European or or in a liberal democracy of some kind. Yeah, I think that I think that's a fair point in the sense that there is this weird contradiction about the popularity of liberalism and i think it what it turns into then is a bunch of like semantic games about the meaning of liberalism and yes. uh, ne- neoliberalism and and such like that because it seems like a lot of the the general premises have been brought as you say sort of broadly accepted so what do you mean when you think of liberalism let's, let's try to stake down some terms here a little bit yeah i mean so it's it's difficult right with all of these terms uh mm-hmm. because everyone like you said the friends of liberalism want to include all the good things and none of the bad and vice versa in terms of the critics. Mm-hmm. Many of the critics whom I would consider liberals at the end of the day, in terms of how they live their lives and the, you know, sort of what they value. Mm-hmm. And I think there's two sides to this. One is political theory or political philosophy. And that's sort of on our, in our publication, our most read article, actually, Paul Kreider's one of his very per- first about the principles of liberalism he talks mm-hmm. about he tries to speak in broad terms about the individualist aspect and the idea of individual liberty he talks about egalitarianism and pluralism he even mm-hmm. goes on to say that liberalism sort of asserts a, a universalism to its position which maybe is a little bit more controversial mm-hmm. but he's sort of you know so then you've got what individualism liberty egalitarianism pluralism universalism that's like five other things you got to define too and he does mm-hmm. he does mm-hmm. and that's and that's sort of you know and, and all all of those things and how much they they go into what philosophical liberalism is is a debated thing the other half though is that liberalism is a lived institutional thing right that mm-hmm. has a history mm-hmm. uh, and another thing that muddies the water is people who criticize political theorists on the basis of what political practice has been and vice mm-hmm. versa. Mm-hmm. So people who say that liberal theory doesn't work because of the way that liberal societies, the history of liberal societies, or the people that mm-hmm. say that liberalism in practice cannot work for some theoretical reasons. There's, and that, when you get into that like space of, there's already debate about what the, what the actual political theory of, philosophy, of, of liberalism is. And then there's this, this practice aspect, it muddies the water a lot. Uh, so to me, I think I'm, I'm pretty big tent and we're pretty big tent. That's why we have the currents. Mm-hmm. I like Paul's approach because he gets at a lot of things that are pretty not uncontroversial that I think a lot of people would agree with, whether or not anyone thinks that any particular liberal society actually lives up to it or liberal, liberal individual. Uh, but lately, I'm much more interested in the practice side and not necessarily in ignoring the conversation about values, but in thinking about sort of like acting more like a Weber or even a Hegel and looking to the practice and trying to understand the values in the practice and draw that out into something that like gives you some resources to criticize the actually existing thing, you know, understand where you can reform it, but like mm-hmm. trying to see the logic that's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so like the, at the beginning of this year, I wrote something that was just a basic primer on liberal democracy uh, and thinking about liberal democracy as something that really emerged late in the history of liberalism itself, because mm-hmm. the early liberalism was more constitutional monarchy. Um, 
mm-hmm. 20th century liberalism is liberal democracy. It's mass democracy plus the giant bureaucracies and sort of that tension between those two plus the the the, the things that define it. Because uh, there can be mass democracy and there can be big bureaucracies without it being a liberal democracy necessarily. Mm-hmm. So the things that make it specifically a liberal democracy are things like ideas of human rights and and, and aspects like that. So I've, I've sort of, my, my personal interest, not necessarily just the interest of liberal currents, the overall publication, which takes all types, mm-hmm. um, has, has, has moved more towards thinking about that. Okay, so obviously there's a, a lot there. And, yeah. I, you know, I think you're right to distinguish between the sort of questions about theory and questions about practice, though I also think there is a problem with that distinction where it becomes very muddied as you try to dive particularly deep into either side of it but let's sort of let's follow it as a distinction a little bit and see where it goes so let's talk about the theory i know you you said you're more interested in the practice side and we'll absolutely talk about the practice especially because i think you know criticisms of liberalism by things like critical theory tend to be more criticisms of the practice of the practice yeah we'll we'll talk about that in a second let's talk about the theory side a little bit more here so do you see the kind of modern liberalism that you're interested in as descending from this kind of John Stuart Mill, you know, utilitarianish um, kind of liberalist approach, or are there sort of other philosophical influences that you think are important in understanding this concept? Yeah, I mean, for for me, so the liberalism that I personally am, and I want to very clearly separate myself from liberal currents, the publication, because mm-hmm. we we take some very far left liberal perspectives and we take some very libertarian liberal perspectives. And I would say we, the editors are not either. Um, but we try, we, we do try and have this, this broader uh, tent that we bring anyone, everyone under to discuss the nature of liberalism and how it should be. My, I, my personal liberalism is more like thinkers like Hume and Smith and Hayek, but also, Obviously, not Hayek's complete aversion to mm-hmm. uh, to government, but more his idea of the energetic and creative side of liberal societies. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Jacob Levy of of more contemporary theorists. Jacob Levy is is huge in in how I think about liberalism, and he's more sort of of the Montesquieu checks and balances uh, world. Interesting. So Mill yeah, doesn't a, feature heavily for you then, personally? Not for me personally, no. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are certainly, like Adrian uh, Rutt, who I know you've had on before mm-hmm. um, and, and is one of our editors, Mill is, looms big for him and the prag- pragmatic tradition in particular, um, which he sees as very consistent with the utilitarian tradition. Yeah, I was actually just reading his Death Spiral and the Ideal of Fair Play, which I think is an interesting concern about, like the stability, the functionality of liberalism. Um, so I'm curious, do you feel like because, so, so you know, I think there's a, a large tradition out there that will call itself liberal or potentially classical liberal, um, yeah. who I think very heavily feel attached to the kind of John Stuart Mill, freedom from constraint kind of side of liberalism. Do you feel like you have... Like you, you can break bread with those folks as well. Do you feel like you're um, more at odds with them in some ways about certain issues within liberalism or that it's mostly just a difference in 
sort of focus? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some things that I'm closer to them on than than anything. That's why Hayek sort of appears in my pantheon, right? Because mm-hmm. I I think so. When I was we you know, we were talking about what questions you were going to discuss, and I was thinking about how I would characterize the the you, I think the way you phrased the question originally was what are the currents you want to emphasize, mm-hmm. and the the way that I was thinking of it is there you know there's a bunch, and I take from several. But to me, some of the important things to emphasize are the creative and innovative and adversarial adversarial aspects of okay. liberal societies, which okay. I think some of the versions of liberalism that I've moved a lot closer to than classical liberals tend to understate. So the the liberal the liberals that are comfortable with regu- with with fairly extensive regulation and, mm-hmm. and even welfare um, are they they might also think adversarial the adversarial nature of our system is one of its downsides um and that we should we should emphasize cooperation more and mm-hmm. i'm not saying we shouldn't emphasize cooperation i think that there are spheres of cooperation and i think that part, part of a good there's always going to be adversarialness there's always going to be conflict and part of any social system is how you not just manage the conflict, which I think is part of the role of politics, mm-hmm. but also how you harness some uh, some of uh, it in a way that is beneficial. I mean, that's the Adam Smith, um, you know, Scottish tradition in a nutshell. Um, what, what makes uh, you so, confident that the adversarial stuff is sort of inevitable in that kind of way, that it's not maybe a product of scarcity or something like that, as, as like someone might argue? Uh, I just history, I guess. I mean, that's a, that's mm-hmm. a cheap answer. Um, but would I like to believe that it could go away? I would like to. I just I haven't been convinced so. Um, and I think one of the, the easy cases to focus on are countries unlike ours that have a m- much more robust social safety net where the bottom, like the floor is pretty high for mm-hmm. everyone. Mm-hmm. And they still they still experience sporadic political crises just like everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily know what I think one way or the other. I just think it's interesting in the ways in which our political philosophies are shaped by conceptions of things like human nature or human behavior or something like that. And the sort of the inevitability of adversarial conflict is sort of looms large in a lot of these kind of liberal but social contract kinds of approaches it seems yeah yeah and that's what i like about jacob levy in particular is mm-hmm. that's all baked in mm-hmm. um his big book uh rationalism pluralism and freedom um leans into this tension between the mill type rationalist liberals who want to just have a property rights regime essentially that is imposed mm-hmm. from the center uniformly across the whole country um and other things i mean he was you know he wasn't just a no regulations guy himself either but but whatever the liberal approach that you uh you know get to you just apply it uniformly across the center versus montesquieu who is much more about creating different centers of power so that Mm -hmm. you have without even having any romance about you know the more local being better he i mean he was looking at france where oftentimes the more local was definitely more corrupt and incompetent uh mm-hmm. than than like the the paris uh center but nevertheless for him they were important potential sites 
of rallying against an overzealous center. Mm -hmm. Um, So creating the the possibility of dissent and protecting it. Um, Jacob Jacob Levy looks at at both of those and says they're both correct, essentially, and Mm -hmm. in tension with one another. And you have to have some balancing of them against each other. Um, And and I, I, Jacob Levy, personally do not know what the correct balance is for anyone's society, but it's something that we should take into consideration. And that's what I like about him is that combination of, he emphasizes the Montesquieu aspect, he sees the strength of the the mill aspect, mm-hmm. and he has the humility to say, there's not like one answer to this, essentially. And if there was, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, mean, I think that raises to me one of the the reasons that I still value liberalism, which is that it seems to be an attempt to sort of cope with this diversity this plurality of irreducible values and the reality that there are multiple ways to live that seem in keeping it seem to be a reasonable balance of those values and that like to me you know at the core for me is the ability for individuals to live a bunch of different kinds of lives that sort of promotes a bunch of these different kinds of values and, and the flourishing that, that goes along with them. Do you see that as sort of central to your particular understanding of this? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, in all of these debates, and we'll get to the cancel culture stuff, I'm sure, mm-hmm. but in all these debates, free speech always looms really big. But mm-hmm. for me, freedom of association, in our, I think because of the First Amendment uh, in our country, free speech just looms so huge in our concept of how liberalism works Mm -hmm. and to me freedom of association is more important because precisely because of the stuff that they talk about in those debates frankly which is that having an association like associating together gives you a kind of backing if someone comes after you for something you say um it also creates vulnerabilities which is what that debate usually actually tends to focus on because if you Mm -hmm. if you say something that pisses off your the people that are backing you, then you could lose your backing and be left out in the lurch. Um, right. <laughs> so it's so not. You're it's saying not, unions are good, but but uh, communities can be backfiring in these kinds of ways. Yeah, but unions can be backfiring the exact same way too. I mean, sure. Um, no, but but yeah, there's a there's another contemporary uh, political theorist, uh, Chandran Kukathis, mm-hmm. um, who wrote a book, The Liberal Archipelago. Mm-hmm. in which he tried to just give a completely sort of absolutist, nothing but freedom of conscious version uh, uh, of liberalism, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense historically, um, right? Because that sort of was the germ, was those religious conflicts and the idea of freedom of conscience. Mm-hmm. Um, he takes it very far. I don't think he succeeds. I don't think he thinks he succeeds because I've, I've talked to him about it. Um, but it's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting to me. And one of the things he emphasizes, which is different from a lot of both theoretical contemporary liberalism and sort of activist uh, liberalism on the ground, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is he pushes back against the idea that liberalism has to be making a conscious choice about what it is that you want. Essentially thinking through what you want and consciously choosing it. For him, mm. freedom of conscience means respecting people who grew up in a more or less conservative community, have never developed a desire to question or leave or doubt that. And mm. for them, the worst thing that you can do is f- force them to... Not... Basically, he says there's an asymmetry between uh, 
the freedom from being forced to live a certain way. Um, mm. So, you know, in a totalitarian society where it could be life or death if you push back on on the, the party line, um, that's being forced to do something that perhaps you don't believe in. But that's different. The freedom from being forced like that is not the same is, is, is not the same thing as saying that you should have you should be hmm. put into the conditions where you're going to choose for yourself what it is that you want necessarily so freedom for con- of conscience for him means if you're born believe if you're born into a community they raise you to believe certain things you continue to believe that no matter what other people say to try and persuade you you continue to believe it then you should be let you should be allowed to live according to your conscience, essentially. And he goes very far with that to some very extreme things that I would definitely not agree with. Um, yeah. Uh, but but it's it's interesting. I think it's something that, like, what I like about that book is it's the, exactly the kind of book where you you sort you disagree with it, but you agree with it enough, and you disagree mm-hmm. with it strongly enough at certain points that it's it's fruitful food of thought. So I would say freedom of conscience is definitely one component <laughs> that I think is important among others. Well, okay. So, but this, I think this brings up one of the real challenges that I think liberalism faces, which is how wide do you allow your liberalism to go, essentially? How many actions, what kinds of actions are you allowing? What sorts of lifestyles are you allowing? Um, And like, so for example, Mill's solution to this is the distinction between harm to self versus harm to others, right? We'll let you do whatever you're going to do as long as it's only harming you versus only harming others. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that distinction in particular and whether that can really be sustainable in our modern world. Um, But then I mean, I think there is also a real challenge that liberalism faces about how to deal with things like um you know really harmful indoctrinating kinds of conservatism right so like maybe living in a fundamentalist christian family is not literally living under fascist authoritarianism or something but like the kind of psychological damage that's being done and the kind of hardwiring and in-group sort of cult-like you know motivating that's happening i think really makes it hard to say that we should that we can sort of you know, feel totally good about letting those individuals lead that life. And at most, it feels like a substantial uh, ethical loss to write it off and say that we can't, there's nothing that we can do about those particular individuals or that we should sort of leave them to that kind of fate. Um, and I'm not saying that was what you were going for there, but I think, you know, there, there were always going to be, it seems like these edge cases around conservative, and I'm just thinking in particular conservative behaviors um that seem harmfully regressive um but that individuals within these communities will claim to be sort of openly consenting to um you know and and what do you do in those situations for liberalism i think is a really difficult challenge so i'm curious about your thoughts on that and like whether you think the self versus other harm distinction gets us any traction there yeah um i think i definitely would not go that go that far that we should just let you know but kukathis definitely was trying to um uh levy is kind of like a more moderating case where his other book is called the multiculturalism of fear and it talk it focuses on it actually has a lot of case studies on uh indigenous people in canada and the interaction between the canadian government and them um Mm. and his point is you have to take the power structures into account there as well obviously it's different when we're talking about 
white fundamentalist Americans who are middle class and have re- the resources to sort of protect themselves and also the cultural cachet mm-hmm. to uh, to draw on a, a base of support within the political system mm-hmm. versus when you're talking about an indig- indigenous people who have sort of areas where they're a little more legally autonomous, but they're weaker institutionally versus the, the liberal state um, that, mm-hmm. that interacts with them. So very different case, put, putting that to the side. But I, I think he has the right focus, which is you have to look at what are the means that are involved. Like when we're talking about what's going to be allowed or not, we have to ask what means are going to be involved to not allow it. Um, mm-hmm. And that's what that's where I ultimately... Kukathis was a funny one because he combined very theoretical aspirations with a pretty good appreciation of concrete details. But... Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, his 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 approach, his theoretical approach, kind of falls apart with the details, because he wanted to just say all we need is the right of exit. Period. That's it. But then, when when asked for the details of what exit means, he didn't want to talk about states, and he did, you know, and he didn't want to talk about, like, he didn't want to concede that, for example, the Amish approach of completely shunning someone mm-hmm. constitutes like a big cost that is effectively like, you know. A, a kind of coercion Yikes. um uh he, he didn't want to do that but he didn't want to discount it like it got very wishy-washy in, in, in actually talking about the details of exit and that's why the whole thing fell apart in my opinion mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but i guess I, I i don't find the the, har- the harms principle very useful personally i think that um it's not a bad rule of thumb but i don't think it's much more than that mm. um i think i think rorty who was a fan of the harms principle um, Richard Rorty was is very good on this stuff because he doesn't care too much about getting the theoretical niceties down. Mm-hmm. He essentially was comfortable with the idea that tolerance is a more or less historically relative thing. We have pretty tolerant societies compared to the historical norm, like very, very, very much so. I mean, mm-hmm. even compared to our most recent history, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. And what what constitutes a harm to others that we sh- that we should care about, and what constitutes like allowing too much, is just something that is contested. And mm-hmm. uh, he didn't say this, but I would say it comes down to the particular ways we decide to uh, ju- adjudicate those. So it's less it's less about like because. And and again, right. this get this gets into what's happened with with the cancel culture thing too, which is that at the end of the day, you have to look at the individual case and say, does this cross the line or not? Mm-hmm. And to some extent, like court cases, like anything that's casuistic like that, um, it sort of comes down to an individual judgment. And so it comes down to saying who in what case gets to decide that. And in a democracy, for the most part, we like to say. Uh, Things get decided by politicians that we, that you know that run for election and therefore mm-hmm. can be held accountable by people. Um, of course, the reality is murkier than that because, you know, I mentioned the large bureaucracies. There's there's a lot of actors in our system that that are only very indirectly uh, impacted by elections, um, at least as as an accountability tool. Though there there are other tools. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it gets murky for for me for me the question. 
there's so i i feel i'm not trying to dodge your question no no you're I fine guess, i guess i would say there's like two there's broadly two angles to answering that question one is that case by case it sort of gets contested um mm -hmm. and e each one of us in a free society is open to judge those case on the merits express so in a public or private forum and and uh and contribute to the process that way uh, mm -hmm. so that's that's one thing but then the other thing is who exactly gets to make the binding decision in the end um mm -hmm. and who get and who, and who has to implement it and and who's 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 how much discretion do those implementers have and all those things to me those are the most important details you're never going to get a theory that specifies this neatly enough that it's going to give you like a rule book to follow on the ground yeah and i think what's interesting to me about that answer i don't think it's a wrong answer but i think it is the kind of answer that to me highlights the collapse of the theory practice distinction that like what yeah. you effectively said there is if we drill hard enough down into trying to understand the theory of liberalism, we're going to end up with this kind of very pragmatic, like applied from the ground up kind of analysis as an answer to a lot of our sort of hardest questions there, um, in which case it means that we what we need to do then if we're sort of assessing this theory is we need to be assessing its effectiveness on the ground we you know so like so switching back to the kind of like how's liberalism doing kind of question it's not totally unfair to assess it in in total right in terms of its application mm -hmm. and its theory um even if we can sort of somewhat pry those things apart a little bit as long as we don't think too carefully about either of them it seems like um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mm -hmm. pull a, su a surprise move telegraphed early in the in the interview and okay. bring hermeneutics into this. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's a bold move. Yeah, <laughs> right, so you right? flip the hermeneutics but, card. Do you want to explain what you mean quickly by that? Very quickly yes. by that. Yeah, I forget the history of why that word occurs, but basically, hermeneutics is to interpretation what epistemology is to knowledge. Okay. Um, so and it was all just mm -hmm. yeah, and it all came about just because a bunch of biblical scholars wanted to come up with a way to theorize how to do correct interpretation, mm -hmm. basically. Which mm -hmm. is why you get people like uh, Heidegger and Gadamer, most importantly to me anyway, um, into it because they were Lutherans. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and, they're, and they're sort of like a Lutheranness to the to the background. Um, anyway, the only thing I wanted to say is that. I think that like splitting things between practice and theory is a way that most people understand and are comfortable talking about it. But for mm -hmm. me, it's actually more about part and whole, the, the, the hermeneutic circle. And mm -hmm. so you can, if we're talking about liberalism uh, as a system, mm -hmm. uh, you have to look to how it's, it's various parts operate. Um, but th what theory is, is, is stepping back and then trying to characterize the whole. And mm -hmm. you can't do that without looking at the parts. Uh, but you can't understand the parts without the context of the whole. So it's this mm -hmm. bootstrapping thing. When you when you say it just sort of on its face, it just sounds like it's impossible to know anything. But it's just that you sort of provisionally go in with maybe some very mm -hmm. simple theory of, of the whole. Um, you look right. at the part and say, well, no, this doesn't work. You go back and, and revise your theory. And then you go back and look at some other parts. And it's just this mutual bootstrapping of mm -hmm. uh, of you look at the part, you recharacterize the whole based on what you've learned. And then you mm -hmm. look, relook at the parts in light of your new theory of the whole, and maybe you understand them differently. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that's actually that as, as a method of gaining knowledge. Actually, I'm, I think we use like bootstrapping methods like that for all sorts of things, like criteria. Agreed. And, and, such. and what I was, I was sort of delighted. There's this philosopher, I think, in the Netherlands 
name uh uh it's like i'm gonna say his name wrong but it's like tuamas taco um and he wrote about what he called the mutual bootstrapping of a priori and a posteriori knowledge mm-hmm. um and to me i like i reached out to him and i said that sounds like the hermeneutic circle and he's like well i don't know anything about hermeneutics but mm-hmm. and we we talked and he sort of agreed that that's that's what he meant by it um that's cool so i, I think there's many ways of, of thinking about it um and for okay. people who don't know those terms but you know a posteriori being uh prior abstract knowledge and a or sorry, a priori being that, a posteriori being empirical. Um, and it's the same thing. It's essentially like, what's the relationship between theory and empiricism? Um, and to me, that's what it is. It's you, you, theory is the discipline of trying to characterize the whole thing and uh, practice or empiricism mm-hmm. is the discipline of trying to learn about little bits of it and how they work to inform your theory of the whole, but also when you're doing that, your assumptions that you've taken from your initial theory of the whole are baked into how you investigate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to switch then, we've talked about a lot here about theory, I think. Yeah. So let's talk about the practice side of this a little bit, because mm-hmm. a lot of the criticisms you see raised, especially by like the critical theory folks of liberalism, is that like liberal ideas sound great and all, but they, they don't, they'll get applied, um, or they get applied inconsistently, or they get applied as like the handmaidens of oppression, and that like there's this, I, I think, plausible narrative that you can tell about how more exploitative forms of colonial capitalism use sort of the veneer of liberalism to continue their process right to effectively evolve into neoliberalism in this kind of way it seems that we're dealing with in our modern world so i guess i'm curious do you are you sympathetic to the critiques of liberalism in the way that it has been actually practiced in terms of how it has um to some extent um reproduced various kinds of historic injustice I think that a lot of good critiques have come out of that, um, but I tend to maybe self-servingly think of them as useful critiques for a liberal to take um, and try and use to improve liberalism. Mm -hmm. Um, It's funny to think about it in terms of critical theory. So I'm absolutely not an expert on critical theory, especially as it's practiced today. Mm -hmm. But Sharon uh, Kuravilla, who who has written for us, um, she was talking to me about Adorno Mm-hmm. And a, a very underappreciated or not very widely known aspect of Adorno is that he absolutely thought the United States was a better actor in the world than than the communists, than the fascists, than, and also sort of thought that leftists overstated even the damage that American imperialism had done and things like that, which is not hmm. something that I knew about him. And, Interesting. Yeah, right. And then, and then you have uh, Habermas, of course, the, by far the most influential member to come out of the Frankfurt School. And whatever he calls himself, I call him a liberal, fr- quite frankly. Like mm-hmm. his, his project, which is all about, uh, you know, the f- free, the right, finding the right conditions for deliberation or p- public, public deliberation in the form of discussion mm-hmm. um, and the various aspects of his project, like civic, uh, civic, patriotism as opposed to nationalism all that stuff just seems very comfortably in the liberal tradition to me so in terms of like the classics i know that there are definitely guys uh and aspects of the of the of the work of even adorno um that are very critical of liberalism um 
but I actually think those original critical theorists, um, mm-hmm. much less inconsistent with liberalism than many suppose. Um, but to 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 get to like the criticism that it's often just a mask for power, or that it falls short of its ideals. Um, or that yeah, as you rep- it replicates the very things that it's supposed to be getting rid of. I mean, I think that's all true. I think that, uh, I think, mm-hmm. but I think again to get to what we were saying earlier about our assumptions of human nature, um, I think these are all unavoidable thing for any ideology um, or any dominant um, value set that undergirds an actual institutional and political order, um, mm-hmm. and. In America in particular, well, I mean, not even in particular because you have the European empires. Um, mm-hmm. But I was, I, and of course, they were the ones that were engaging in the Atlantic slave trade to bring them to the Americas in the first place. So right. all of the all of the liberal societies, the original liberal societies, have terrible things in their history, absolutely terrible. And many of the things, like in America, uh, in particular, many many of the things that got institutionalized in trying to build a liberal society absolutely did empower the the already dominant liberal forces in it like the planter class in the south here um Mm -hmm. and then even when you get to the most liberal industry focused side of liberal society like in the big cities in the north um they devised you know one of the things that i personally believe is while america has more or less reckoned with the legacy of like Jim Crow and slavery. One of the things that we really don't talk about nearly enough is Northern urban mm. racism. Oh yeah, for um, sure. I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Jim Crow moves North. That is 100% um, all, exactly. What oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's I always think good. of the, it's not, not a good story. <laughs> well, and I always think of the color of law, um, mm-hmm. which is a book about housing policy mostly. Mm-hmm. And you know, these, these cities, uh, devised a lot of institutional tools uh, to subtly or not so subtly segregate and reduce the options available to African-Americans and other minorities, but especially African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was not a reckoning with that the way that there was a reckoning with Jim Crow. Uh, you know, the, the VRA and, and the Civil Rights Act, but especially the VRA, uh, absolutely crushed the Jim Crow, Crow regime. It did. It's it, You know, Jim Crow was absolutely crushed as, as a unique phenomenon um but there was no i mean there was some so the you know the john the 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 great society there were some general purpose anti-discrimination things that did reach the north but there was nothing equivalent nothing nothing nearly as as decisive as that for the more subtle tools of of northern and, and urban uh segregation um, yeah, and that's something I, that I think we still have to this day. I mean, and, and quite honestly, mm-hmm. we still we've we've still even as things have have gotten better in many respects, um, I don't think we ever did something that sort of did the lion's share the way that the VRA did for for enfranchising African Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I mean, let me, let me first say the first part you said about the like the idea of of sort of reconciling the various critical kinds of theory with liberalism i i actually totally agree with you that i think there is you know a lot of um overlap there and that a lot of the people that 
like the anti-woke will put forward as you know trying to tear down liberalism or actually like you say sort of in favor of it but trying to critique some of its flaws or something like that trying to improve it um in these kind of ways i don't think these things are necessarily incompatible um i do i do think there is something to the concern that this kind of as you've been saying liberals focus on individualism and um i I would argue sort of electoralism to some extent right like there's at least an argument to be made that those approaches suck the oxygen out of more aggressive forms of reform approaches and thereby sort of extend you know this this prop these injustices out into the future indefinitely um where an alternative model that i don't necessarily know would actually be more effective right but at least might sort of hasten some kind of change or something like that um so i guess i'm curious do you do you worry about that at all or do you sort of you feel pretty comfortable that like this is the like at least the best practical model in terms of making incremental progress if no progress yeah i mean it doesn't have to be incremental um i mean you can have for example rewriting a constitution um one which has happened in many countries you know in the post-war period um mm-hmm. and then and even you get like uh, new zealand adopting a totally different uh voting rule system pretty recently like a, i don't know 20 20 30 years ago at most i think hmm. um and again, that's, you know, that's electoral to some extent, but that stuff, that stuff, you know, that, that changes outcomes uh, pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but maybe that's a consummate liberal answer, like change some voting rules and that, that changes, changes the game. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, but, but so like to the, because thinking just concretely about what alternatives there have been, and, and I, I recognize that that limits your approaches and I'm all for creative thinking, but just as someone who is in, you know, out there and changing the world himself, all I know is what has been done before. And if we think about this, the civil rights movement, um, there was a ton of the use of freedom of association, right? They, they, they built bases of solidarity through organizations. Um, they worked closely together uh, I can't, I'm trying to remember who it was that I was reading about this. Like the, the March on Washington was like months or even years in the making in terms of planning um, down to the many steps and coordinating the many actors and the Montgomery, like the Montgomery boy, bus boycott, similar thing um, took tons and tons of planning, long hours, um, people working very closely together and then coordinating with various different groups. Um, mm-hmm. And you know that that was pretty that was pretty aggressive. That was very local, obviously. March on Washington was more of a national thing, but the March on Washington was more of a symbolic thing, right? And obviously, it mattered, um, and it but it mattered in an electoralism kind of way. Whereas the Montgomery bus boycott was much more of a direct action. Uh, we're going to economically harm you. For we're going to use the economic might of the African American community of this specific local community to bring you to heel and bring you to the negotiating table. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm all for that kind of activism too. I mean, that's, I'm not against that either. Um, uh, I think our current conditions have made that harder than they used to be. Um, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. but I don't think that's a good, I don't think that's a positive development. Um, so I think I'm waffling in my answer here, but I, <laughs> I, 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 when it comes to how to achieve change, I think there's a huge range of possible approaches and that I would not object to particularly because mm-hmm. I think within, within the realm of freedom of association and freedom of speech, um, it, it, there's, there's just so much you can do. And I, I, the only, the only thing that I'm against is like violent uprising, right? That's like, you know, violent, a, a coup or, or a violent revolution. Um, I certainly don't support, um, and I don't support rioting, even though, like Martin Luther King, I do understand it under certain conditions. Um, mm-hmm. And I think so. Here's one thing that, as a liberal, I can say I'm uncomfortable with, but will admit, there have been periods in in America's history where race riots and things like that have actually scared the the shit enough out of the powers that be in particular cities or in particular even regime you know administrations federally that have. Mm-hmm gotten something done i think nixon who signed the first reauthorization of the vra um after having promised strom thurmond and people like them that he wouldn't i think he he was quoted as saying i'm gonna sign this so that the goddamn country doesn't burn down or something like that mm-hmm. <clears throat> so i you know i am not comfortable with writing as a method of activism um but i have to admit that looking at the history it's not predictable when it will work, but it has worked sometimes. This is a problem. I mean, this is a challenge that I face myself as a liberal. And like, I've been thinking a lot about political violence and stuff like this. And that there's this sort of hot potato game that everybody plays where nobody wants to be the one who says I'm for political violence, but everybody wants to say, but I believe there is at least one point in history where political violence was justified. And I sort of worry that like, one effect of liberal electoralism is that it makes it so that violence um that that sort of violence could only have been justified in the past that like no present violence yeah, can true. ever be justified um which which you know again and again i don't I, i'm gonna get tagged for being the one endorsing violence but like i do <laughs> worry about the reflexive way in which we close that door um as a sort of attempt to keep a moral high ground of some sort but which might also involve again abandoning people to this you know the 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 redress of tormentors um that you know we're not pulling they're not helping them uh get away from in this way yeah i mean my answer is that i just don't think i like so look my dad is cuban mm-hmm. um i i a few years ago read a very thorough history of Cuba and I was sort of stricken by how it was kind of like a dark mirror on American history Mm -hmm. in that there are a lot of similar characteristics that just went way more wrong than they did Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. So there was a huge gun culture in Cuba um, in the period before Castro. Um, And there was this similar sort of revolutionary rhetoric um, and idolizing of certain foundational figures um, but then it's for for essentially the entire period that they had their really fragile democracy um whoever was out of office would fall into the role of insurgent uh it wasn't mm-hmm. just like they were just the opposition mm-hmm. they were also part of an insurgency um and 
it just became this unhealthy dynamic where what happened was they chipped away at the strength of the government because each one was fleecing it when they were in or fighting it when they were out. Um, and the government was bleeding legitimacy. It was bleeding sort of like the capability to even organize itself. Mm-hmm. And what ultimately happened was that weak regime was was first toppled over by Batista, who was a member of the military. But then Batista had long ago politicized the military itself. So a tiny insurgency group uh, that was pretty well organized, Castro's, um, was able mm-hmm. to take over, was able to, to beat a national military uh, because they had so, you know, the, the, the dynamics of the country had so undermined itself. So my, my, mm-hmm. my feeling is when things, I, I don't think like writing is justified. Like when, when I, when I mentioned riots as an example, I don't think writing is justified. I think they're a symptom that something has gone very wrong and that, and that, simply condemning them morally is not going to fix things. Simply mm-hmm. saying you should not do that is not the right approach. It's a sign that something's gone wrong. Um, okay. uh, Fair enough. Um, yeah. And, and as for re- like revolutionary violence, I just don't think, uh, unless you're already under a dictatorship, I just don't think that it's, it's, it's a justified thing personally. <laughs> okay. I don't have a perfect answer here. I just wanted to sort yeah. of, challenge the conventional wisdom a little bit at least um but i I, i'm sympathetic to the idea that like those kinds of approaches are more you know just as likely or maybe even more likely to cause more harm to the people you're trying to help Um, yeah and that's because they tend to hurt the most marginalized but i want to yeah if if, to get myself canceled sorry i know that we have other things we want to talk about but to get myself canceled since you've defended yourself as pro riot or something um fair enough Uh uh, to, to get myself canceled now uh, reading about Cuba also increased my f- feeling I've had more and more over time, which is that the American Revolution wasn't really justified on the merits. That mm. there was a ton of bloodshed, and that ultimately we probably just would have ended up like Canada without it, <laughs> which is uh-huh. not like the worst thing to end up. <laughs> That's funny. All right, I'll, I'll give you that one. Um, so <laughs> I, you know, the original reason we were going to get together and chat was partly because you recently wrote a piece for Liberal Currents in response to an Applebaum's piece about cancel culture. Um, and I guess let's just start with you sort of giving just your elevator pitch on what your argument was here about cancel culture. What was the main sort of point of the argument that you were looking at? Yeah, I mean, my my main case was really just that her case was not made. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, and it really more than an argument. I just it was an expression of frustration on my part because year after year we have these super intense, high-profile debates about this thing we call cancel culture, uh, and it seems like the debate remains at a very superficial level. Someone gets disinvited or fired. Sorry for the yeah, siren. No, so, um, someone gets disinvited or fired, and it's called censorship. Then someone replies and says it's not censorship. It's just freedom of association. Uh, and then it never really moves beyond that point. Mm-hmm. Neither side really categorically believes in unrestricted freedom of association, but neither side really articulates what the standard is we're supposed to judge uh, a particular case by, mm-hmm. um, if, if, if not freedom of association. Um, most on, on the Applebaum side are still happy to just call it a kind of censorship, which mm-hmm. I think is inappropriate. Um, 
and then and then the apple bomb one is just so frustrating because it focuses entirely on high status elites working in prestigious fields for prestigious organizations who are people that have the most resources to be okay when something like this happens you know what i mean mm -hmm. they're not going to be they're not going to be homeless on the street um and uh many people that i so to me it's always about it's it's not about whether something bad is happening i honestly think that many of these cases are ridiculous i am personally and again maybe this is my electoralism again speaking to use that word again but like i'm not a big fan of calls for firing someone or or this like mm -hmm. peti petitioning to punish someone approach to intra-institutional behavior um but i also see it as part of free speech um and so in and you know calling for someone to be disassociated with part of freedom of association um mm -hmm. and in many cases it is justified like in many of the cases that Applebaum even talks about we're talking about sexual harassment or or misconduct which is not a matter of, of viewpoint censorship right it's, it's it's something that should be punished um often with firing uh, uh -huh. depending on the on the on what it is um do you think it's still valuable so, to talk about cancel culture in certain situations or what is your feelings about that terminology at this point uh, well the cancel culture thing i think everyone is sick of the term um mm. it's just that we don't have a better one um mm -hmm. but I, I the two things that i want are one a more robust discussion about the the limits of freedom of association and mm -hmm. the sort of the, the thick cultural, actually to get back to Habermas, sort of the, the thick cultural requirements for what you need um, for a robust discussion to take place. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, but then on the other hand, I also think that there is something that's changing because of the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that we should study and talk about and think about and analyze. I just think that the analysis gets very bogged down in the moralizing when there's definitely a phenomenon that's happening here and it cuts across different things what we call this cancel culture but then journalists will talk about online harassment um and then in another mm -hmm. domain with kids we talk about cyberbullying. and for me it's all sort of the same phenomenology just applied in different domains mm -hmm. um uh and again the, the, you know not not to compare like criticizing someone to cyberbullying, but what I just mean is there's a very low barrier of entry to jumping in and saying and denouncing someone, whether rightfully or wrongfully, mm -hmm. and it, predictably, you know, this has certain results. Um, mm -hmm. And and understanding how our society is going to change in response to that, I think, is very important. So in, in that respect, I think it's important to talk about. Um, but I don't think that's a conversation we're having. <laughs> yeah, and I think part of the word, I mean, my issue, I think, with the term at this point is the word culture there, the idea that there is yeah. like a specific community. And it's usually associated, obviously, with whichever community you're not a part of, right? So the woke <laughs> or the anti-woke, whoever, right there, the cancel culture or something like that. But like, yeah. it isn't a culture. It's, as you say, sort of the intersection of human enforcement behavior and norms with new technology and increasingly polarized politics or something like that right yeah. and that's you know so in that sense our entire society is this part is part of this cancel culture right it's not one subset um or another now to your point though about like you want a thicker account i wonder do you feel like it's possible that culture cancel culture discourse is just like an unavoidable byproduct of like somewhat effective liberalism that like once you have a society that has relatively decent sort of freedom of speech and 
such things that you're just inevitably going to have an endless jostling over those boundaries, those thick concepts, you know, or, you know, a lack of jostling over them, depending on how much bullshit is flying around at the time. <laughs> but like either, you know, even in the best of times, right, are we still going to be kind of endlessly locked in a discourse about, you know, who gets to have access to what platforms and, and how? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also think that alarmism in the press for a free press is kind of also inevitable mm -hmm. and especially inevitable when you have rock bottom barriers to entry that we have now. Mm -hmm. Do you think I mean, that makes it pop? You could argue then from there that like a liberal society has a stability problem in the sense that it will inevitably, this you know, gets into paradox of tolerance kind of stuff, right? Inevitably promote um, or allow for the growth of a bunch of these kinds of extreme positions that media will arise to reinforce those positions because it's um, incentivized to do so. And so we will end up in inevitably kind of end up in the kind of feedback loop that we're experiencing right now where like the right wing is spiraling out of control. Well, I think that this gets back to the very beginning of our conversation. This mm -hmm. is sort of like the canonical adversarial behavior, right? And mm -hmm. I think that liberalism provides the best lens for thinking about how to cope with, um, and in some ways harnessed, but in I think th this particular example mostly cope with, uh, the mm -hmm. uh, the intri our intrinsically adversarial tendencies in some domains. Um, and I don't think that there's an easy answer that we have for it, but I, I do think that, uh, I, I don't think liberal society is the only one that, that struggles with this for one thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think that liberalism as a lens of, of looking at it and both the history of liberalism and the, and the theory um, is, is the best approach. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. So we're just about out of time and I got to torture you here in a second. But before I do, please, please do. You know, I like to ask, are there any resources that you want to point to? Obviously, Liberal Currents obviously is great, but like other books or things, especially for folks who maybe are a little daunted by the idea of reading Habermas, right? Who yeah. might, you know, that might be helpful for them to understand sort of why liberalism might not be worth removing from the table at this moment. I mean, Jacob Levy, either of his books, and I think he's got a new one coming out soon, but either, either rationalism, pluralism in society or mm -hmm. the multiculturalism of fear, mm -hmm. um, both very readable. He's a good writer, um, very cogent to the stuff we've talked about. Mm -hmm. um, he's very good. Um, Nancy Rosenblum mm -hmm. has a, a book called um, uh, Membership in Morals, which is about sort of pluralism hmm. um, and freedom of association, which is very good. Um, and r honestly, Richard Rorty, great resource. But rather than reading Richard Rorty, I would say read uh, Bill Curtis's book, uh, Defending Rorty, okay. um, which which gets at, which is a sort of like a great reconstruction of the overall project from a political perspective um, mm -hmm. and talks about like leaning into these ambivalences and the contested nature of liberalism and things like that. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. Well, now let's make with the torture. So this is okay. the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. 
All right. So for folks who are new, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your only options. You can't hedge. You don't get to define what you mean. There is no stopping once we've started. Uh, no do we ontology. No. Nope. Yes. All right. Are you ready to roll? Yep. Okay. So first of all, let's find out, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out which things are real. The external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Mm, not real. Phenomenal consciousness? Real. Free will? Real. Selves or persons? Real. Genders? Mm, not real. Races? Not real. Species? Real. Morality? Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to say real. Mm, good choice. Uh, rights? Not real. Knowledge? Hmm. Not real. God or gods? Oh, I, do I really have to choose? <laughs> I guess I would say not real. Okay. I, I feel agnostic on the matter, but I'm going to say not real. <laughs> I don't expect that to be the one that was going to trip you up. Society? Real. Money? Uh, real. Numbers? Real? Yeah, real. <laughs> <laughs> Fictional characters? Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground? That's interesting. I'll say not real chairs real sandwiches <laughs> real science not real natural laws real beauty not real love real causality real and finally time uh not real <laughs> all right you survived how do you feel <laughs> i feel like there were definitely some contradictory answers in there <laughs> it's pretty standard pretty standard i was surprised <laughs> that god was the one that you balked on well it's funny you know i have this uh i have a sub stack that i use as kind of like a another way to get money for for liberal currents mm -hmm. and i i literally just wrote for this monday uh, my personal journey in like 2015 or so with like exploring all of that. Mm, um, interesting. And basically deciding that I don't believe it, but coming quite, quite close to maybe taking that plunge. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, fair enough. I'll suggest people go check that out and um, you know, they can see if they're in a similar place. So yeah. um, Adam, thanks so much for coming on. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you in terms of things like Twitter handles, such things? Yeah, uh, just my first and last name, Adam Gurry, on, for Twitter. Um, if you want to submit anything to us, writers at liberalcurrents.com. Uh, we're always looking for people. Uh, yeah, that's the main thing. Yep, and I can I can um, attest it is a quality process. I put something forward a while back, and it was a fun time. So definitely, it feels like a very long time ago. I have to oh, say, but I, it probably yeah. was not objectively. I know it was like five months ago, right? Wasn't it? It feels like <laughs> 10, 10 million years. No, it was it was a couple. It was a year ago, right? At least. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so long. All right. Well, thanks, Adam. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. 
As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. As always, I'd like to thank our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T., and the illegal police chaplaincy in Covina, California, and the Theocracy Now, Fix the Vote, Dude, and Lawrence Shielding. And all the thanks to our top-tier Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, Filmed Live Musicals, and leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter, at ETVPods. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, even when the exhaustion is too much, you are the void and the void is you. Mm-hmm.